the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. There will be no separate peace between Israel and the Arab world. I want to make that very clear to all of you. I've heard several prominent politicians in Israel sometimes saying, well, the Arab world's in a different place now. We just have to reach out to them and we can work some things with the Arab world and we'll deal with the Palestinians. No, 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 and no. I can tell you that reaffirmed even in the last week as I have talked to leaders of the Arab community. There will be no advance and separate peace with the Arab world without the Palestinian process and Palestinian peace. Everybody needs to understand that. That is a hard reality. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That was former Secretary of State John Kerry at the Brookings Institute when he was Secretary of State in December of 2015. I'm joined now by Assistant to the President Jared Kushner. Good morning, Mr. Kushner. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. Great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Has Secretary of State Kerry called you or President Trump or Secretary Pompeo or anybody to congratulate anyone on the Abraham Accords, which he said in December of 2015 simply could never happen? Uh, I I have not had direct contact with him, but, you know, he's somebody who I'm sure is rooting for America. And and I think that many people have just been very supportive about this deal. I mean, yes, on Friday, we announced the third peace deal in the Middle East in the last couple of months. And You know, very few presidents make one peace deal, but now President Trump's done three peace deals. And what we're seeing is, is the more that we've been able to get these deals done, the more countries want to come on board, the more people want to get past old conflicts. And President Trump has taken a different approach, not one that was uh, looked at or thought of by the, uh, the, the typical Washington insiders who have done this for a long time, but it's yielding results. And, and after years of getting criticized for doing it differently and for using unconventional people to do it, people are seeing that uh, that this uh, this this different approach is is one that 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 that's really working. The Abraham Accords, as you said, in ten weeks have produced three deals: the United Arab Emirates and Israel uh, normalized diplomatic relations. Bahrain and Israel did the same, and then last week, Sudan and Israel did the same. Morocco and Oman are allegedly lined up over the landing field to do the same. It's a diplomatic triumph with very few precedents since the Soviet Union fell. Uh, what are the consequences, Jared Kushner? That's the most important thing. What are the consequences for the Middle East of all this uh, diplomatic normalcy breaking out? Well, you know, what's what's incredible is, you know, my team was just over there and they all came back saying, you know, man, the feeling is just so much different. And this is such a bigger deal over there than people are allowing it to be over here. But the notion with peace is that it can become as big as you allow it to be. So what happened here was really barriers were broken in the Arab-Israeli conflict that had uh, been up for a very long time. And now uh, the people in the region are really taking hold. And it's almost like we've let a tiger out of the cage and people are rushing to do business, to get to know each other, to visit the tourist sites in each other's countries, and to try to build the bonds that 
were not allowed to be built because of these artificial barriers that that led in place. I mean, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is, uh, in, in many ways, was used by Arab leaders for you know for 70 years to divert uh, attention and distract from a lot of their shortcomings at home, and they used that to keep a barrier up. It was built off of anti-Semitism, and and it created a lot of hatred um, and instability. You look at Iran, you look at they call their military the Quds Force or the Al-Aqsa Brigade. Uh, you know, you look at a lot of these jihadists in Africa throughout the Middle East. They use uh, the plight of the Palestinian people or uh, the threat of the Al-Aqsa Mosque being under attack in order to get younger people radicalized so they can keep their bad activities uh, going. And, and what's happening now is people are able to start going to Israel, seeing that the Al-Aqsa Mosque is open uh, to everybody. And uh, and it really will, will I think, reduce hostility and terrorism throughout the entire region and throughout the entire world because it brings people together. This has just been one of those core conflicts that has been exploited by bad people um, for, for, for half a century, maybe even you know, close to a full century uh, in order to uh, you know, push for bad things. And, and this is really the beginning of that end. So you know, I, I believe that we've planted some seeds now, and I think that the, the, the short-term returns have been great, but I do believe that the long-term returns are going to be extraordinary uh, if we keep leaning into this. And, and I do think there will be more peace deals. There will be more coming together. There will be uh, security relationships, business relationships, technology relationships, agriculture relationships. And those will even further cement the relationship between these countries and, and allow the Middle East to become a more stable place. The final point I'll just make on that is that um, if you look at from 2001 till today, you know, you look at what China has been able to do as a country by focusing on uh, their infrastructure, their economy. I mean, they did it in certain ways that obviously took advantage of, of the world and the politicians allowed that to happen. But you look at the Middle East, it's gone backwards. So, you know, the hope is, is that if they could eliminate some of these wars and instability and security risks and create the right governance structure and the right interconnectivity and eliminate these old problems, uh, the potential for the Middle East could be one of, of a very exciting uh, emerging market. Now, Jared Kushner, you mentioned Iran in there. I'm curious, did the killing of Soleimani advance or disrupt momentum towards the Abraham Accords? I think it helped make the Middle East a more peaceful region. I mean, speaking to a lot of military, uh, U.S. military service members, they spoke about how, um, again, when America was negotiating the deal with Iran, uh, they were forced to stand back and not take aggression. They said Iran knew that they were in a posture of of stand down and they they really toyed with them. They would uh, obviously, you know, uh, really attack different brigades and and it it caused a lot of death and casualties uh, to American servicemen that was, you know, very avoidable had they had a posture like President Trump has has had, which is, you know, you hit us, we hit you a hundred times harder. Instead, it was you could hit us and there'll be no consequence uh, because we're going to telegraph exactly what we're going to do, which is nothing. And so, uh, obviously, this was uh, he was a mastermind of a lot of the terror and instability of the region, uh, and 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 having him not uh, around anymore uh, has, I think, created a much greater opportunity. You look at Iraq. Uh, we were speaking with um, the, the leaders of Iraq. They're saying that since that happened, uh, Iran is a whole different country. Saudi Arabia says the same thing. Uh, you know, Syria's become, you know, a little bit better. Iraq's become more stable. Yemen's become more stable. And, you know, Hezbollah and Hamas have, you know, much, much less uh, resources thanks to the U.S. sanctions that we've put in place under President Trump and thanks to some of the uh, some of the strategic um, uh, leaders of, of these uh, wasteful resistance movements, uh, obviously being off the board. Now, uh, you also raise uh, an interesting question about anti-Semitism driving a lot of the previous impasse. 
Do the Abraham Accords, already with three countries to remind the audience, with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and now Sudan, do they effectively kill the BDS movement, which needs to be killed? Do you think that this momentum has, has just cut the legs off of the anti-Semitic BDS movement? Well, I, I think it's very hard for, for Europe to be more, um, you know, kind of more righteous than, than the Arab countries on issues like this. But the reality is, is, look, you know, people have romanticized a lot of these different conflicts and, and made them into things that maybe suit their political needs. But the reality is, is that you have two disputes there. You have a, a, a border dispute, which is really a real estate dispute, which is, you know, 1967, there was a war, it was a defensive war from Israel. Israel then took over the land. And, and, and basically, you know, you have thousands of years of claims that both sides make. But, you know, in, in history, there are wars and, and, uh, and the people resolve it. So at this point, you need to resolve, you know, a border dispute, which is drawing a line. Both sides have two positions. Uh, a result is something negotiated. Anything that's negotiated is by definition arbitrary. And, uh, and you need to resolve that. The second dispute is the Arab-Israeli dispute, uh, which really has to do with the mosque, which I spoke about. And you know, even you go back into the 1920s, there was a, uh, you know, a mufti named Haj al-Husseini who, uh, who basically was you know, going around the, the world raising money and creating instability. He was friends with Hitler and Mussolini saying the mosque is under attack. And so what happens now is that we've tried to lay out uh, a resolution to the real estate part of this. And I think that shows uh, you know, what could be realistic, you know, where you're not displacing Israelis or uh, or displacing any Palestinians, but you need to get that resolved. And then you want to allow people to have free access to the mosque. So I think what we've done is we've almost dissected the, the dispute and allowed people to see, like, this is the rational framework for how we're going to resolve it. And, um, you know, when I was with uh, the Oman, uh, the Sultan of Oman, uh, a caboose, the one who unfortunately passed away, who was a great leader, uh, he said something to me which really, you know, influenced my thinking on this, where he said, you know, I feel bad for the Palestinian people that they carry the burden with them for the Muslim world. And I, I you know, in reflecting on that, I said, wait, that's right. You know, who elected the Palestinians to negotiate on behalf of all the Muslim world uh, for issues that pertain to the Muslim world? So, you know, what we've done is we've gotten Israel to agree to uh, to affirm that the king of Jordan can be the custodian of the mosque. And we've tried to separate uh, the Arab issues from the Palestinian issues, which we believe at its core is a territorial dispute. And I think that once you dissect that, that allows Israel and the Arab world to start coming together. Again, three peace deals in a short period of time is a historic achievement. Some people work in government for 30 years, can never get a single peace agreement. Um, you know, we've done three, and I think we have more coming. And, uh, and I think what this does to BDS is it just makes it a senseless, uh, you know, it, it makes it a more nakedly anti-Semitic uh, approach at, at this point uh, and something that, that really should just be eliminated. Now, now uh, Jared Kushner, President Truman recognized Israel in 1948. President Nixon saved it during the Yom Kippur War in 1973. But I think President Trump fairly can be said, along with those two, to have been most critical to Israel because he's led the Arab world to recognize and embrace the existence of Israel. Fair statement? Uh, I believe so. And look, you know, President Trump, he understands American power, American strength. And what he did with the Middle East is his first trip as president was to the Middle East. If you remember the last campaign, the Middle East was a hot topic. You had, you know, basically a genocide in, in Syria. They were killing Christians. Uh, ISIS was running rampant. 
Uh, Iran was fully emboldened, funding proxies that were destabilizing the whole region. And America was still relying on the Middle East for a lot of energy. And so if you think about what President Trump did, he went to Saudi Arabia. He brought together the 54 leaders of Muslim and Arab countries and said, this isn't America's problem. This isn't your problem. It's all of our problem. And, you know, he set up a center there to combat terror finance. We've now gotten into the banking systems of all the Middle Eastern countries. We've reduced the funding of terror by by a dramatic, uh, dramatic amount. Uh, we opened up a counter-extremism center in Saudi Arabia. We've seen some tremendous reforms there uh, that, that will help, you know, reduce the long-term uh, extremism and radicalization of, of the youth. And uh, we defeated the territorial caliphate of ISIS, which was essential. And I think that you've seen that Iran is a different country today than they were four years ago by having their resources significantly hampered. And so I think that President Trump also hasn't allowed these countries to cherry pick um, or to look at things through a conventional um, a conventional lens and basically say, okay, let's agree on what the goals are. Let's all agree on that. And then let's keep iterating and working to try to find ways to get there. And so, uh, again, over the last three and a half years, we've been criticized. I mean, uh, me in particular, by all of the you know experts who worked on this uh, problem set for a long time. And the reality is, is that, you know, we took a different approach, but it's that different approach that allowed us to achieve the different results. Oh, you know, Jerry Kushner, if they, when they write up the history of this, they'll say uh, a peace breaks out in the Middle East. Experts hurt the most. Uh, I, the team that you just mentioned, uh, we know about the president and the vice president, you, Secretary of State Pompeo, uh, Robert O'Brien. But there are names like Avi Berkowitz, Captain Mark Vandroff, Brian Hook, Matt Pottinger. We know about Ambassador Friedman, but I had to look up the charge affairs in Sudan, Brian Shukin. You know, we know about Ambassador Alotaiba and Ron Dermer in the United States, but how many different people are involved in this? What's the team number? Uh, we've got a great team. I mean, you also didn't mention uh, General Miguel Correa, who was also an essential part of the team. Uh, you know, we we had um, we probably have about 15, 20 people on our team who have been working through these issues. Again, you know, I said the other day that, you know, peace deals are not as easy as, you know, President Trump is making them look right now. Uh, again, there, there's a lot of issues that have to get resolved. You have to build relationships. You have to build trust. Um, and you really have to have some frank discussions. You know, and one of you know my favorite quotes that I used to use when I was in business, but it applies to this, is that change is like heaven. Everybody wants to go there, but nobody wants to die. And I find in politics, everyone can tell you what's wrong or where they want to get to. But then when it comes to actually making hard changes, uh, people fall all over themselves. And On that resistance. point, so, Jared Kushner, would, the, would this have happened had the embassy not been moved to Jerusalem, which was the first and most difficult choice? Republicans and Democratic presidents alike refused to do it. Was that the essential move on this chessboard? Um, it's hard to say in retrospect. I mean, people will write this or they do, but I do think it was an absolutely essential thing. It showed that President Trump was going to keep his word. And it also showed people that a lot of this conflict was a paper tiger. People had so much fear, the intelligence community, the people in the region. They said that if President Trump kept his promise and did it, um, that it would it would lead to uh, war and, and instability like you'd never seen. And then President Trump did it. And then the next morning, the sun rose and the next evening, the sun set. And, uh, and and life moved on. And it showed people that you know, he was going to keep his promises. He was going to do the right thing and he wasn't going to be bullied. And, you know, he also got some criticism from a lot of uh, the experts who basically said that um, that he should be uh, getting some concessions from Israel for doing it. But President Trump said, look, A, it's a promise and B, it's the right thing. And you shouldn't be uh, extracting things for doing the right thing or for keeping your promises. And what he did get from that move was he got the trust of 
of, of the Israeli people and then the respect of, of the rest of the region. And so I guess, it would, yeah, you can say it was a very essential step. Now, um, is it, um, is it in, reversible? In is any of this reversible? Do you fear that uh, post-President Trump, whether it's Joe Biden or someone down the road, that someone will undo all this work? Is it or is the momentum so significant that it has to be maintained? Look, I'd love to, to, to think that it's all uh, the momentum is great and this is going to be a, a major change in history. But, you know, there are roots now, but everything has to be maintained and, and has to be watered and has to be tended to. So, you know, I, I, I would think that anything's reversible. But I do think that the momentum we've built is strong. But I do believe that if President Trump gets another four years, uh, I think the momentum will only accelerate and the results will be extraordinary. So I think four more years would make it much harder to be reversible. But I do think there is just tremendous momentum now around this movement. Uh, but again, another four years would, would really help cement this legacy and then make it even you know 10 times stronger. I do believe that if President Trump wins, uh, Palestinians, you'll you'll resolve that pretty quickly. You'll resolve Iran. Uh, you'll get full normalization with all the Arab countries, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Oman, everybody, uh, because at this point, it's inevitability. We just have to keep with the strategy and, you know, not go back to the old way of doing things, which unfortunately is how a lot of the Washington people, uh, you know, try to do it. Now, Jared Kushner, I promised an out right now, but if you'll blow through the break, I'll ask you about the first step back. Do you have five more minutes? Yeah, of course. Well, well, then let me turn to the first step back, because like the Abraham Accords, it got almost no play in the debates whatsoever. It's so important in a June 2020 assessment uh, by the Brennan Center, uh, which is at NYU Law School. It's very liberal. It's named for the great person. It actually has on their on their website an update. December 21st, 2018, 1 p.m. President Trump has signed the first step act. And in June 2020, the center's senior counsel, Ames Grawert, woke. The First Step Act is intended to do two things, cut unnecessarily long federal sentences and improve conditions in federal prisons. More than a year after it was enacted in 2018, key parts of the law are working as promised. What's your assessment, Jared Kushner? Uh, I think it's been a tremendous, tremendous uh, success. I mean, the First Step Act was a prison and criminal justice reform. It basically did, you know, two things. Is one is it made the prisons more purposeful, right? In America, we've had a debate, what's the purpose of our prison? To warehouse to punish or to rehabilitate. And, you know, there's a lot of examples where you have prisons throughout the country that, you know, a a lot of uh, future criminals come from your prisons, right? The recidivism rate is too high. So it takes people in prison and it gets them job training or mental health treatment or alcoholism addiction. It helps them with uh, reconnecting with their families or their communities so that, you know, 90, I think 7% of people who are in prison are going to leave anyway. So when they do leave, you know, we want to give them every chance to not uh, commit a crime again and to, to, to be productive members of society. The second thing it did was it rolled back some of the laws from the, the 94 crime bill that, uh, that obviously was passed by President Clinton. And uh, and uh, and obviously, uh, you know, Joe Biden was was bragging about having written that bill. Uh, and that uh, basically did a disproportionate sentencing for crack. Uh, versus powder. Now, crack was more of a black drug versus, you know, powder cocaine, which is more of a white drug. And the disproportionate impact on the black community meant that a real generation of of black, uh, young black men really were sentenced to prison for, for, for terms that were uh, way longer than they needed to be. And so uh, so uh, we overturned some of that, and I think it really made a very big impact. And then 13 states did copycat legislation and, and followed um, that uh, th- th- these these rules. And so this was based on what we did in Texas and Georgia, uh, where you can both reduce your costs for warehousing people, reduce crime, 
uh, and obviously, you know, improve people's lives. So it was a tremendous success. And uh, President Trump was very proud of it. He stood with law enforcement. Most of law enforcement fully endorsed this. Uh, and it was a, it's a great legacy item that I think is great for the country. It makes our, our system more fair, our country better off because of it. Um, and it really is just a, a great, great success. Now, this is the first time I've ever talked to you on air, Jared Kushner. I've only talked to you twice before off air because I was opposed to the First Step Act. I had my reasons. And you called me. And then you worked those. You called me back and said, we fixed that. And then I, I support. Did you do that with a lot of people? I mean, how much time did you put into the First Step Act? Uh, I put in a lot. Look, you know, people say Washington's broken. But the reality is, is that our, our founding fathers were, were brilliant in the system they created. And to get a law passed, it shouldn't be easy, right? You have, you know, uh, you know, you have con- congressmen and senators from all over the country. You have advocacy groups. You have, you know, people with opinions and everyone weighs in. And, and you know, sometimes you have to fight misinformation and, and sometimes you have imperfection. And so, you know, when we were doing the, the legislation, it died about 50 times. But every time it would die, it would be because a strong stakeholder had an objection. And so, you know, obviously you don't want to water it down that it becomes nothing. So you have to negotiate back and forth. But, uh, you know, the point you were raising, I, I thought, was was actually a valid point. It was a concern that that some people had, which was based on a, a, a turn of the draft as it was negotiated. And uh, and uh, and so I wanted to call you, get your perspective on it. And uh, and we were able to get both sides to agree to uh, to fix the problem that that, that that you thought existed in the law. So, again, you know, just because somebody's criticizing it doesn't mean that that person's bad. Those people may have valid points of view. So you have to remain flexible and open minded. Um, and I, I think the biggest thing we were fighting there, too, you know, was uh, obviously some people had valid points like you did, but some people also had uh, misinformation. Like, you know, we had people criticizing us saying, well, this is going to let murders and rapists, rapists out of prison, uh, you know, early. And I, I basically would try to I mean, some people you just couldn't reason with. I say, wait, you know, what part of you thinks that this is you know, the, the strong law, for, law and order president who, who fully backs law enforcement? Uh, want safe communities. What makes you think that he's agreeing to do something that's going to allow rapists and murderers and child molesters out of prison? That's not uh, what this legislation is intended to do, and it's not what it does. And so we were fighting back against that misinformation. But ultimately, and again, you know, there are some criminal justice reforms that we don't support. Right? Anything, if taken to a liberal, uh, too much of an extreme, could be a bad thing. Um, but the reality is, is that we were able to do things that made sense. They were tried and true. I think they've both uh, allowed people to have second chances, which, you know, we believe in second chances and redemption. Um, and, uh, and people shouldn't be judged by the worst mistake they ever make. And, um, and I think that what this allows people to do is, is to, to get back to their communities and their families and hopefully have a real second chance. But it will lead to, uh, to lower crime and it will also lead to lower costs to the taxpayers by not having to pay for people to be locked up in prison who we don't have to be paying for. It's expensive. It could be about $30,000, $35,000 a year. You could send somebody to college for that amount. My, my last question, Jared Kushner, I want to go very high with this, 30,000 feet, uh, and it's back to the Abraham Accords. The very first lecture I heard in college, and you may have had Stanley Hoffman, too, was about the Melian Dialogue and the fact that diplomacy is, it doesn't really exist. There's only power relationships. Uh, Dr. Kissinger believes strongly in diplomacy. After you've done this, you've just given a sort of standing ovation to the framers on legislation. Does diplomacy actually work, or is it always really the Melian Dialogue, the powerful dictating to the less powerful? Well, I, 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 I don't think it's one or the other, right? Doctrines are, are complicated because it's really about application, right? So, you know, when I was in uh, one of the countries, you know, uh, on my first tour, my, my first year was really about listening more than it was about uh, lecturing, right? And so I was really trying to understand 
why this had failed, what people's perspectives were, what we could do differently, and, and how we should resolve this conflict. And, you know, one of the leaders said to me, you know, Jared, I think you're going to make peace here. I said, well, why do you think that? And he said, well, you know, the U.S. usually sends, you know, one of three people to the region, you know, people who come and fall asleep in meetings. You have people who come and read note cards, um, you know, and have no ability to react. And then you have people who come here and try to convince us to do things that aren't, aren't in our interests. And, you know, what you've done is you've come here, you've listened, you're trying to get our perspective. And, you know, I was always a big believer in the win-win deals. And I think that, you know, if you do this the right way, you can build trust. You know, not everything has to be transactional, tit for tat. Um, you know, you don't have to keep a balance sheet. You have to be saying, you know, what can I do to further our interests? You have to build trust. You have to uh, be able to work together. And you have to figure out how do I create a win-win scenario where, where all sides do better. And, and I think that that is achievable. So I, I guess it's, it's you know, the reality is America does have a lot of power and you have to um, – you have to obviously work with that, but there's also a notion of you have to build trust and do diplomacy. So I'd say it's probably a combination of those two things. Jared Kushner, assistant to President Trump, thank you. Good luck in the closing eight days of the campaign, and congratulations on the Abraham Accords. There are going to be books written about this for decades to come. You've done a great, good thing. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Jerry Boyer of Town Hall Finance for townhall.com. The Obama administration was once defined by low growth and high spending. When Obama took office, our debt to GDP ratio was around 90%. Today, it has passed 105%. While high debt is always a risk, you can to some extent outrun it with high growth. Under President Trump, while spending increased, it was partially offset by relatively high growth. The Obama years were bad for our economy, but our debt was low enough that we were able to avoid economic collapse. Neither of these would be the case under a Biden administration. Our total national debt is higher than ever in peacetime, and Biden's plan will only raise it dramatically further. He's proposing over $5 trillion in new spending and the largest tax increase in 70 years. Low growth, high debt, and a growing tax burden. That's a very dangerous combination. And that's exactly what we should expect from a Biden presidency. I'm Jerry Boyer. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.